So uh, welcome everyone to episode two of the um, now named Divergent Opinions podcast. Um, yeah, we may not keep that name. It's not bad, I guess. Whatever, it's super witty because it's like a play on, on the name of the company. and and. The, Thank you. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. That's, yeah, that's good. I felt very proud of that. Um, so... Uh, this week we're going to try to be uh, more nerdy and uh, more confrontational. Uh, so yeah, so we did it. We got some feedback from the from the people we made listen to it, and uh, it sounds like they want. It sounds like it can be longer, and it can be much less, much more opaque. <laughs> which which is good because opaque is what we do well. Um, as anyone who's ever gone to dinner with us understands. So, um, what are we talking about this week? Ah, so I was thinking we could do, um, sort of use our first episode, the Final Cut Pro X stuff, and the transition away from QuickTime and whatnot as sort of a point of, uh, jumping off point for talking about sort of what, how image processing works and uh, sort of what's changing in the industry, how we've all, you know, everybody's talking about GPUs now and doing everything and OpenCL and CUDA and what exactly that means and what it is and uh, why it's such a drastic departure from what was done before. Okay, that that sounds like a workable topic. So maybe we should start... um by going back in time a little bit and just talking about sort of um, how this all worked, say, five years ago. Um, and, you know, in, in sort of software terms, think back to Final Cut 5 or something like that. Whoa, hi. Um, so maybe you can talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, how things used to work. Okay. Um, so let's, I think mostly what we're talking about right now is sort of the operations you would think of in something like Final Cut as filters. That's really where most of the processing is done in a video application. Yeah, so filters, transitions, you know, which are just sort of specialized filters. <laughs> right, and even even codecs at some level are like a specialized filter. Um, and so basically all, you know... With any with any of these operations, you're taking a giant grid of pixels and doing something to it. And it's worth thinking about. You know, that's really where all of the the processing. Right. So let's let's talk a little bit about what that what that grid of pixels would be, sort of. Um, and just for simplicity's sake, let's talk about um, something like DV, um, because it's something we're all really familiar with, and the the math is a little easier. Um, so in in DV, um, you've got 720 pixels by 480 pixels, and each one of those pixels is um, represents a color, um, but that color is represented as an 8-bit YUV value. Yes, three 8-bit. Right, Four. three. No, well, three. All right. Um, and and so um, and and we'll skip over things like color subsampling. Uh, for now, because uh, that just makes things a little more complicated. But you know, when when you get to the point of talking about the NLE, 
Um, that's sort of irrelevant anyways, but, um, you know, some of you are out there saying like, well, but it doesn't really have that many samples, but, uh, you know, well, shut up. Um, so you've got, uh, 720 by 480 pixels. Each one of those is made up of three 8-bit samples and an 8-bit sample means it's a value between zero and 255 or, you know, some other range of numbers that has 255 numbers in it. Um, and those represent YUV values, and that's how you get a color. Yes? So far, so good? Right. Okay. So, yeah. So there's there's a couple different ways to encode an image. Basically, for each pixel or some set of pixels, you're giving them a color, which is some number of discrete data points. So the very first... So let's go back a long ways. It started with the Mac you know, the Mac Plus, the Lisa, we had um, black and we had white. So each pixel was either a one or a zero. And then they added grayscale. So each pixel was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight through 16 as a level of gray. So each number had, a, each pixel was a number between zero and 15. And then we went on and we added colors. And the first iteration of that was there were 16 colors. And each one of them was just given an arbitrary number. So zero is black, one is white, two is red, three is blue, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, you're getting, you're getting sort of choppy here, but keep going. And so... So then we then we got even smarter and we decided well and computers got faster and we had more information and so we gave each call each pixel a set of three numbers an R, a G, and a B. And so each of those could encode zero through two hundred and fifty-five. And so if you have a certain percentage of red, a certain percentage of green, a certain percentage of blue, you can make any one of, what is it? 16.7 million, million, I think. And so that's, that was, if you, if you remember computers back in the late 90s, people talked about how many colors you had on the screen. So you had thousands of colors or 256 colors or millions of colors. That was basically a product of the bit depth of each of those channels. And I was going to throw in here, um, jumping back one level, just to point out that um, some of you are probably familiar with the, the GIF uh, file format, um, which you might pronounce wrong as GIF, but uh, shut up. Um, and uh, that's an indexed format, um, similar to that, that sort of 16-color um, system that Mike described, um, except that 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 palette in, a, in the case of a GIF can be drawn from a wider palette, but the idea is that sort of you just have a lookup table um, in the case of GIF from 0 to 255 that reference the, that's the total number of colors that that GIF image can contain. Um, so just to, to bring it back around to a format you might be more familiar with. Right. And so now these, these individual, so when you get into video, you have more than one frame. And you have each one of these frames is basically a discrete at the simplest level is a discrete frame of pixels. So 720 by 480 pixels 
each of which has you know either red, green, and blue channel, or you know with video we often use a, a different set of arbitrary code points, which are YCRCB, which is Luma, and then two other channels, which are probably better left for another podcast <laughs> when we get into color yeah. difference and things like that. Um, you know, and the, the point is just that, you know, what, what we're trying to get to is to point out the sort of um, amounts of data we're dealing with here, I think. Um, so if you want to get a sense of, uh, you know, a single frame of DV, you know, how, how big is that when if you were to sort of save that frame as a raw image, what you would do is multiply 720 by 480 by uh, 255 by 255 by 255, um, and you would come up with a value in bits, and you divide by eight to get to bytes to find out um, how, how big the raw frame of, of DV is. And that's what your computer is dealing with when you're you know, scrubbing through the timeline or you know, doing a render or anything like that. Right, and it's also worth, when, and so, hmm. so when we get into processing this data, inside the computer, it you have to start thinking about how the data is actually laid out. So the program takes this data, which is a frame, and for the most part you handle things in whole frames. And so the frame is stored in a single block in memory. It starts in either the top left corner or the bottom left corner, and it just is one big long string of numbers. And the numbers are pixel one, RGB, pixel 2, RGB, pixel 3, RGB, just one after another. That's the common way of storing a frame on a computer. There are, there are other formats like planar where you do pixel 1R, pixel 2R, pixel 3R. You go all the way through the entire frame. Then you do pixel 1G, pixel 2G, pixel 3G, etc. Then you go pixel 1B, pixel 2B, pixel 3B. But for the most part, you... Either way, you end up having one pixel followed by the next pixel followed by the next pixel. And so anytime you're trying to process that data, the only thing nearby is the pixels to the left and to the right. And in some ways, the pixels above and below, but not they're further away in data. And this becomes an issue when you're trying to move large amounts of data around inside the CPU because the CPU likes looking at small windows of data as it goes. That's what gets loaded into a cache, processed, and then flushed from the cache. Right. So let's um, maybe talk about a you know a, a simple sort of imaginary filter that you might write. Um, and if you didn't know any better, um, say you wanted to write a filter that um, took a frame and cut every one of every value in half. So um, every pixel was the resulting pixel was going to be half of the original value. Um, so half is brighter or whatever, um, half the value. So what you might do is is take um, two nested for loops, one X and one Y, um, and then look at each of those three values for each one of those pixels divided by two and and save it back out to a new frame. Um, and so on a, on a traditional sort of CPU, your, your x86 or PowerPC, um, those are all, you know, probably integer operations. Um, and what's going to happen is it's going to have to go out and sort of fetch each of those values one at a time. And, you know, maybe, maybe slightly smarter than that, depending on how smart the compiler is, but in, in its most basic form. Um, 
you know, if you think about the assembler, it's lots and lots and lots of loads um, and an operation and then a, a save or another. Move. Right. So let's, I mean, let's go, let's make it so that. Right. Um, and so the interesting about that thing about that is that is how most color corrects, color correct type filters are done. That's also how most keyers are done. That's how most um, transitions like fades are done. Um, and when you think about it, what's happening is for every input pixel, you're doing some operation, divide by two, um, and then writing it back out. And this is where we get into something. This is um, um, okay. So there's this there's this uh, there's this uh, process called uh, or not process. There's this clip this classification called Flynn's taxonomy. And uh, you can you can find that on Wikipedia. I think it uh, it's named after some guy. His first or last name is Flynn. Um, and the idea behind it is you are doing process, you're either handling data, single data for a single instruction, single data for a, for, uh, multiple instructions or et cetera, et cetera. So the two that we're used to that, that most computers are able to do at this point and that we commonly talk about are SISD and SIMD. So single instruction, single data, and single instruction, multiple data. The idea being that for any, that you're doing a specific thing to either one piece of data at a time or multiple pieces of data at a time. Does that, yeah. does that yeah. make sense how I'm describing this? And so basically this is this is whether or not you have data level parallelism. The, the idea behind this is if you're if you're taking two frames and you're or if you're taking a frame and you're trying to do something like change the colors of all the pixels, as long as the color that you're that you're saving out is based on just the color that you're reading in and no other data, not the the color of the pixel next to it or the color of the pixel from the previous frame, et cetera, et cetera, you have a high level of data parallelism. Right. Which because each one of those pixels is an entirely discrete operation. And so to talk about what that means in terms of um, performance, for example, um, you know, so that means that if I've got let's let's not get too far into things like pipeline stages on a, on a CPU, but um, just to think about how you might deal with with threading in that case. So say I've got two CPUs in my computer and I want to apply this fictional filter. Um, I could in, in that sort of environment sort of split the frame in half and operate on them separately um, and and use both of my cores. Whereas if that filter um, involved sort of changing a value affected the values near it um, suddenly I can't I can't do that because uh, you know the, the thread one the running on one core needs to know about what's going on in the other core does that drive right so let's say let's say we had a different filter which was the oh, Gaussian blur how about mm, even that's pretty let's let's stick with these uh, 
fictitious filters. So let's say we had a let's say we had another filter which was the pixel on the the brightness of the pixel instead of being half of what it was before is half of what it was before plus half of what the pixel mirrored on the other side of the frame is. So you take basically you're computing a like a center reflection. So that what happens is if you have a, a, a frame which has a black bar on the top and a white bar on the bottom, when you run this filter, it takes the pixel in line one and the pixel in line 480 in the same position and combines them and writes it out. Right. Is that? That makes, that makes sense. sense. Yeah. Okay. So now, all of a sudden, if you try to run that on a, you know, with your your fictitious threading model here, where the top of the frame and the bottom of the frame are computed on different CPUs, now all of a sudden both CPUs have to read both of those frames in order for this to work, and we end up losing most of our. Right, and it's it's one of the issues that in general makes threading pretty complicated in video because you have the same issue if, for example, you want to say, you know, this core takes every odd frame and this core takes every even frame. Um, again, if the you know frames are interrelated, um, suddenly that that falls apart. Or even if you want to say this frame takes the first thirty seconds and then this or this thread takes the first thirty seconds, this core takes the next thirty seconds. Again, it's it's difficult because video being a sort of temporally linear format. Um, makes makes a lot of this threading stuff pretty tricky. A lot of people have sort of asked over the years why on my um, you know awesome six you know twelve core twenty four thread Mac Pro Final Cut only uses two hundred percent CPU rendering. Well, in, in part it's because you know the G fours on OS nine only had two cores, and that's when they sort of added multi threading. But a lot of it's because you know in a traditional CPU based render model, threading is is tricky, and you know they weren't ready to throw out the entire application until recently. Right. And so this is where this has been a, a very hard nut to crack until fairly recently. And so what has happened is hmm. So basically GPUs came out a while ago and they did they were very good for doing 3D graphics. And a lot of that had to do with the drastic architectural departures that they did from the CPU. So, so with a CPU, you give it a stream of instructions and a stream of data. Now, I believe in, in most architectures, those are actually fairly interrelated. It's basically one big stream that that has both of them interleaved together. But what you're doing is you're saying, okay, so here's here's my variable A and here's my variable B, add them together and give me the result. And then you say, okay, now that result multiply it by two. Okay, now, and then, so if you're trying to do something like our fictional simple filter, you're able to do one of those mathematical operations at a time, and you do them all serially. So 
let's say we're doing this divide everything in half. You say, okay, so pixel one, R channel, divide that in half. Okay, now write it out. Pixel one, G channel, divide that in half. Now write it out. Pixel, pixel one, B, divide by two, write it out. And so each one of those things is done as a discrete operation, one after another. And now, I mean, there's some things that are done now automatically in the CPU to do those two at a time. Right, and you start to get into, again, a sort of pipeline depth um, and, and predictive threading and all kinds of crazy threading stuff. and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's easiest to think of it as a single operation that runs one after another serially. Now, the big change in architecture when, when GPUs came out was things were done in parallel instead of in serial. So what happens is you hand it, you tell it that you want to draw this frame. And what it does is it runs everything through what in the beginning was a fixed function pipeline, which basically said, okay, now I'm going to compute the fragment for each of these things in the window. And what it would do is for every single pixel in the window, it would figure out what color that pixel should be. And it would do that by basically drilling through all of the geometry and whatnot and figuring out, you know, oh, this is going to be a red pixel when I draw it. And so what it could do because of the because it was looking at it from the pixels backwards to to find to find what color they were, you know, with a with a CPU model, you would start with your data and you would drive forwards until you figured out what what the data dictated each pixel. And so each piece of data could end up affecting pixels in any place on the screen. What you do in the GPU models for every pixel, you, you go backwards to try to find out what data affects it and use that to compute that single pixel's value. And what this allows it to do is the, you know, um, a modern or even, a, you know, an original couple generation GPU has multiple processors on it. And each of those processors, they're called ALUs, arithmetical logic units, they can handle one single pixel on the screen. They can do all of the computational pipeline for that one pixel at one, you know, and they can all, you can have a, a chunk of them doing it all at the same time. And so what that means is when you're trying to build up a, a large frame worth of data, you can, instead of, you know, computing one pixel at a time, you can be computing, you know, I think the current ones are, you know, 1,024 ALUs, I think, or something. Something crazy, yeah. And so what that means is for very specific problems, you get a, you know, two orders of magnitude speed up because you're able to do things across, you know, it's like having a room full of 1,000 computers all choking away or a thousand cores in your in your Mac Pro. And, now, and the, just to just to jump back or to clarify one thing, my understanding is also that one of the benefits of a GPU is in terms of the way you um, feed data to it is because it's thinking of um, textures or or you know it, it thinks in terms of two dimensional arrays of pixels. You can be more efficient in terms of how you shuttle data to it um, from memory or from wherever. Um, and how it then operates on that data as well? Um, yes and no. 
it's actually not any it's not really any more efficient than the CPU in handling it. In fact, I would I would guess that a CPU is probably more I mean a modern CPU is probably more efficient than a modern GPU at, you know, figuring out pre-caching data and, and all of those, you know, all those pipeline optimizations that are built into the new Intel chips. I would say they're much better at knowing what you're going to want before you ask for it. The the real advantage of the GPU is that it can hide so much of that behind just the brute force number of operations it can handle at, at you know. A CPU has can be doing one thing at a time. So you can do you do one memory read followed by an operation followed by a memory write. You know, that's our that's our canonical filter that we're talking about right now. Right. Um with the GPU, it's a thousand and twenty-four reads, which is one op, you know, all at once, right. followed by a thousand and twenty-four, you know, of those divisions, all at once, followed by a thousand and twenty-four writes. Now, I mean, in reality, those reads and those writes are not as fast, for a number of reasons. One, because, you know, if we're talking about a program like Final Cut that data that you're playing back at some point was on your hard drive or was from a previous filter or was from somewhere. So it was actually on in the CP in your RAM on the machine. And it needs to be shuttled across the bus into the GPU to do this operation. And that's a fairly slow process. It's called DMA and it's moving, moving your data from, from the CPU side to the GPU side. And that's done across, you know, the PCI bus. So you have that entire move over to the GPU, followed by, you know, the, the reads and writes are fairly slow. Um, you know, I mean, I think I think the reason why, why your intuition is that they're faster is because you hear things about, you know, data pipelines. Right. How much faster they are in the GPU. That's true, but you're, you have to remember that that's across a thousand. Sure, sure. Use. So, like, yes, you get 10 gigabytes of bandwidth, but, you know, when you think of, you know, what a load costs across 10,000 or across 1,000, you know, AOUs versus, you know, what it costs to get an integer, you know, an integer into a CPU, that load is, you know, two clock cycles. So you're talking, you know, one... 2.4 of a hertz. <laughs> I think that's math, right? Sounds right. And so this yeah. was, um, what was it? With, was it FX Plug that first introduced um, GPU accelerated filters in Final Cut? Or did they do that outside of the FX Plug architecture? Originally? So the first, the first time this showed up, so this is, so a long time ago, the GPU just did, did its own thing. You didn't use it for doing filters. You used it for drawing 3D objects right. or drawing textures in a position in 3D. Right. So a camp sort of formed called GPGPU, which is uh, Purpose. graphics processing on the GPU or I don't, generic processing. I don't remember what the GP stands for. But the idea was it was a group of people who... What's that? 
General purpose. General purpose GPU. And the idea was they were going to figure out ways to to misuse, for lack of a better term, the GPU to do general mathematics. Right. And there's actually... The I think being, oh, go ahead. The idea being that you could upload data under the, the ruse that it was either geometry and or textures for your, you know, 3D game, but instead do some series of composite operations on the GPU, which actually ran a series of mathematical operations that you wanted, which could then be, and then what would traditionally be drawn to the screen could instead be read back from the GPU and then turned back into a stream of data. And, and you know, a Mac user who's been around for, you know, the last you know, decade or so of final of OS OS 10 evolution probably remembers, um, you know, that in, in OS 10.1, um, when you, you know, window operations were very slow and around 10.2 or 10.3, something called Quartz Extreme came along. My understanding is that that was basically an implementation of, of this same idea that they moved a lot of the actual manipulation and handling of things like windows and and the drawing that happens in the OS 10 UI onto the graphics card by treating windows as textures. Right. And so let's let's convert our, our canonical plugin here. So we're trying to make everything 50% darker. Right. The way we did that before is in the GPU, we looped through every pixel. For R, G, and B, we divided by two and wrote it back up. The way we would do that in the old GP, GPU days is We'd take our RGB frame, we'd turn it into a texture and upload it to the GPU. So now we have a, a texture that can be applied to a set of 3D geometry. We'd make a window inside the GPU, a, a viewport is what they were called in OpenGL. We make it 720 by 480. We'd make a square that was 720 by 480 and we'd give it a texture of that frame. We'd then say, I wanna draw this texture on this square at 50% opacity, knowing that 50% opacity to the GPU means we mix that texture with the background color 50-50. Background color being black, we end up black being zero, we end up, you know, in, you know, because of, because of basically by reverse engineering the graphical process, we end up getting a divide by two. Right. And this then, is just, just to well, stop, stop there, just to point out that, um, a, a secondary advantage to this is that now we're programming in a language that understands things like frames and, and graphics. And so, you know, the actual implementation, leaving aside the, the sort of intricacies of OpenGL, the implementation means that you're sort of speaking a language that is relevant to the data source you're using in, in that sort of way. Which is true for these sort of problems in GBGPU. Right. I mean, there are a lot of people doing weather modeling and such, which... Right, and I think that's our, our next step here. But but for you things like this, stretch your metaphors much more. Where we're creating is is this a shader we're creating? No. So this was this okay. was before that. This okay. was back in the good old days of GPU. And so 
over time, there were a lot of requests, and sort of the the OpenGL model was extended from you know the old days of OpenGL one. Basically, all you could do is take you could upload geometry, and you could upload textures, and you could apply the textures to the geometry, and you could do a few other things like set opacities on things, and you know they were all it was it was what was called a fixed function pipeline, meant meaning that you you couldn't tell the GPU what to do to your data. You could only tell it what things you wanted to have it to have happen. So you could say, I want this to be drawn at half opacity. And then you had to, from there, you know, so you would have to, so say you want to do a divide by, by six instead of a divide by two, you would have to sort of reverse engineer that in your head. So, okay, divide by six would actually give me, you know, one, over sixth, one sixth opac, you know, of the original value. So if I draw the thing at one sixth opacity, then that's the same as drawing, you know, as dividing by six. And right. so you could do this for, you know, for very specific problems. And there are not a lot of problems that can be solved this way. And over time, the the architecture was extended, and we got what was called the uh, a programmable pipeline on GPUs. And what this allowed you to do was to upload very small programs into very specific places in this graphics pipeline where things could be done in a more extensible way. And so in the in the very beginning, you got two, well, in the very beginning, you got one, one place to insert your code, and that was a fragment shader. The idea being whenever something was being drawn to the screen you had a chance to alter those values at the very last minute so after everything had been set up in the process of the draw of any object you were asked what color it should really be and and in that process you were given a number of pieces of information you were given basically where you were on screen what object you were, a couple other things. And from there, you could start to do things like create really complex filters. Because now you could now you could take our our you know our previous implementation of this filter and instead do something like just make a square in your viewport, draw the thing and say this is my texture this is my texture fragment. You know, this is a small program I upload. And that program could actually do for an input pixel, divide by two, that's my output pixel. And so it's a much easier way to think about these problems. So if you want to divide by two, you just write a fragment shader that says, okay, my input pixel R, you know, divide by two, that's my output pixel R. And, and you still get all the multi-threading benefits or the, this parallel performance benefits. Right. And so this is, this is really the first time we have access to something called SPMD which is single program multiple data. This is this is the new model that everybody is crazy about now. The idea is you create these very small programs which work with a single piece of data and then it's up to your architecture to create to spawn, you know, dozens, thousands of these things and run them all at the same time. So when you were writing a fragment shader, you didn't necessarily you didn't you don't think about a frame anymore you think about a single pixel and what you're doing with that single pixel at draw time 
And so what's great about this is you used to write these these loops that would go for X and for Y, you know, walk through the thing and do this stuff. And now what you do with the SPMD model is you just say, okay, for any input pixel, divide it by two, and that's my output pixel. It means things like frame size don't matter. It means things like number of these arithmetical logic units on your GPU don't matter because if you have 12 of them, 12 of these pixels are being computed at once. If you have a thousand of these, a thousand of these pixels are being computed at once. And it doesn't change your your code at all. Right. And so um, an application like Scopebox makes heavy use of shaders in this way, right? Um, yes and no. Some of it does. And this is this is sort of the double-edged sword with SPMD is because you're now working at this level where where you're only thinking about a single pixel at a time, it makes some operations incredibly easy to write. Our, you know, our divide by 2 filter is one line of code now. Right. Um where it becomes harder is when you're trying to do things that have to have to uh, that are based on some other. If it's only based on the input pixel, then it's very simple. If it's based on other information, then it gets harder. So imagine, you know, now we'll bring in some more complex examples, like a Gaussian blur. So a Gaussian blur is or, you know, find edges, or any of these filters are all what are known as convolution kernels. And, and the, way, the way these kernels run is basically when you're computing your value, it's based on the values of the pixels around you. So the, the simplest blur is the color of any one pixel in that frame is based on the average of all the frame pixels around it. You know, the pixel above, the pixel to the left, pixel to the right, and the pixel below. Right. But what that means now is your your program has to have access to five pixels in order to write out one. You know, right. because you can't. And so what that means is that for every for every pixel in your image, you have to read five times as many pixels. And so now these, you know, this is something that the GPUs have gotten very good at. They're able to actually read from a lot of different locations and write to that one location. So you're still, you know, still on a GPU. When it asks you, when you, every time you get run in a fragment shader, it's only asking, there's only one answer you can give it, and that is what color should this pixel be? So the way to think of it is, you know, Basically, the, the GPU says, okay, what pix, what color should pixel 1 be? And you can say, well, I need to know the, the color of pixel 1 and the pixel to the left and the pixel to the right and the pixel above and the pixel below. And then it gives you all those. And then you go, okay, great. So the color of this pixel should be, you know, dark blue. And then it asks you, okay, what about the one next to it? And then you, you know, you, you ask again, I need the one to the left, the one to the right, the one above. And you can you can do that, and so these are what are known as as gather problems. So there are two types of, you know, from working with these 
with SPMD for all these years now, the GP, GPU guys have figured out there's two major, there's three major types of problems. There's the, you know, embarrassingly parallel problems, which is, you know, date, based on a single piece of data in, you compute your piece of data out. And so that's like our divide by two problem. Then you have problems like um, the the blurs, where what you're doing is you're taking a number of pixels and combining them into a single pixel. Those are called gather problems. The idea being that you're, you know, the the output for any one pixel is based on a, you know, a finite number of pixel, other pixels. Right. And but you know, and so that that is how we do things like. Um, Really, there aren't even any of those in Scopebox. I mean, really, Scopebox is only... So, the GPU in Scopebox is predominantly used for visual effects. So, we use it for doing things like the um, the intensity um, modeling in the scopes. So, we compute a series of you know, essentially histograms on the CPU. So, you know, each, when you, when you see, say, a waveform plot in Scopebox, what you're essentially, what we're, what we're computing on the CPU is that frame with a number for each um, pixel in the resulting waveform. And that is uploaded to the GPU, and the GPU is where we run a small fragment shader, which gives it the, you know, the color that you chose and as a trace color and it does the intensity modeling where you know it blows out the whites and it does you know a little bit of um, gamma mapping and such but none of the actual computational stuff is being done on the gpu and that's because it's still very hard to do a problem where the resulting information is based on a large number of input pixels. So if you think about the problem of, of computing a, a histogram, let's say a simple histogram, so you're trying to do 0 through 256, a luminance histogram like you see on the back of every you know, DSLR. Right. All, all you have there, your output is 256 numbers in an array each of which is the number of pixels in that image that have that number, have that white level. All you're doing is counting those white levels, basically, for the entire frame. Now, the problem of that is if you try to compute that in something like a fragment shader, you have to... So you, you need to run the math for each of those 256 items in that array in that histogram. Now the problem being each one of those, so the first the first one is black. So you need to figure out how many pixels in your in your source image are black. Well which pixels do you need to look at to figure that out? You need to look at all of them. Right. And so now you have to read an entire frame of video to compute the first one. And so that's run on a single AOU. That AOU on the on the GPU reads every single frame or every single pixel in the frame. Okay, now you the next one has to look at every single pixel. So it does 
it reads every single pixel in the frame. So you're essentially looking at every pixel of the frame right. 256 times. Right, which is bad on two levels. One, each one of these, you know, the, so the GPU has lots of ALUs, but they're not nearly as powerful as a as a CPU. You know, I think the the average clock speed now is what 400, 500 megahertz on a. I'm not sure. I think they're getting up towards a gigahertz or something, but. Nonetheless, it's in you know, at least half as fast as a CPU, and that's just the number of operations that can be pushed through at once on a single AOU. You know, that clock speed means. You know, it's you can do more than that because you have, you know, you have uh, the width to your pipeline, but that's still the speed at which data progresses through the pipeline. Now, when you're trying to do something like a histogram on the GPU, you, you can only do, you can only be using a maximum of 256 of those ALUs at once, at least in, you know, in the 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 simple implementation of this. You end up only doing, you only end up using, you know, 256 of your cores on this GPU at once, and each one of those has to read the entire frame. And so it's, you know, it's bad on two levels. One, you're not filling your entire width of your pipeline, and two, your each pipeline is incredibly deep because each one of those things has to do, you know, 720 by 480. By three reads followed by one write. And so that ends up actually being, you know, drastically slower than doing the same operation on a CPU. Right. And so, you know, and so what, you know, what the entire GB. Hello? Hello? These are, you know, processes. Oh, you cut out what there for that? a second. If you could uh, repeat what you were saying. Yeah, so the problem is, you know, so what, what the GPGPU groups have been doing all these years is trying to figure out how to reframe all of these problems in such a way that they can actually take advantage of the GPU. So, for instance, a histogram, what you end up doing is you say you have, you know, 256 bins you want to put everything into. You convert, you know, you cut the image into stripes that are only 256 wide, and then you run as many as you can so that you fill the entire width of your pipeline, and you create multiple histograms. And then for each of those histograms, you, so you run the, pro the whole program once, then you switch programs, and your new program is just to add these histograms together. Sure. You have to run that a number of times as well. And so you end up, you know, it ends up being an entirely different model for how this is computed. And this was how it was done for a long time when you were trying to basically misuse this OpenGL pipeline. Right. Which brings us to, you know, the new state of the art, which is OpenCL and CUDA. Right. And I'm wondering if maybe we should uh, hold off on that for, for another show because that gets pretty uh, complex and combative and we're about an hour in here. I, I mean, I'm not sure there's all that much to say about OpenCL. I mean, I think we can, I think okay. we can get through it quickly. Oh, OpenCL, in you know, in my mind, just to talk about it from a high level, OpenCL sort of hit the scene what two, three, three years ago or something like that. Um, yeah. As something that was, um, you know, Apple was pushing, but is a, a standard that's been submitted to the Kronos Group um, to sort of take what was um, 
graphics card vendor specific programming languages and abstract them into something that can be more generic, a little bit higher level. So, um, for example, if you think of um, back in the day when when Apple was moving from from PowerPC to Intel, um, if you wrote C code, you could just compile it for PowerPC or compile it for Intel, and and a lot of the times ignoring some some issues um, that that would work whereas if you were writing assembly code it wouldn't because you'd written very specific things that only spoke PowerPC or very specific things that only spoke Intel and that's sort of where we'd gotten to with um, some of this this new model of um, programming your GPU you would program your Nvidia GPU or program your AMD GPU um, and and OpenCL was this this way to try and unify that um, and OpenCL has been a really hot topic in the sort of um, Apple enthusiast community, I think, since that first came out, because um, it's it's a technology that demos really well and it looks really sexy. And um, when you have something like that and you show it to fanboys, um, they're going to sort of glom onto that. Um, and I think the reality has been a little bit a little bit more complicated. Maybe you can maybe you can talk about what what's really going on there that that makes that so. Right, and so I mean this. So for a long time, we were trying to shoehorn these mathematical problems into a set of set of well okay so so before we were talking about this this histogram problem and how you would do it and what i said was you know you take the data you run you know this this small histogram and then you add them all together and what that meant was because the system was designed for drawing to the drawing to the the screen it meant that you could only you would set up a pipeline and you would run it. And so what happened was, I mean, sure you could draw off screen and read that back to the CPU, but you couldn't run more than one program. So what would happen? What what the GPGPU guys came up with was something called ping ponging. The idea being you'd upload your you upload the texture that you want to make the histogram of, and you would run you would load that first program. And that first program would do for you know the the thousand little histograms, and you would you would draw that to an off-screen buffer, and then you would take that off-screen buffer, make it into your texture, which you know you could just say like you could say this is now a texture, and then you would load a new program which took those thousand histograms and converted them into 500 histograms, and you would draw that to the same buffer. And then once you were done, you would load up another program which took 500 histograms and turned them into 255, and you would draw that. And so you end up having to do, you know, consecutive, you know, swap your pipeline out, reconfigure, dump the data through, then rebuild a new pipeline, you know, push it back the other direction and you'd ping pong between these two buffer two off-screen buffers you would you know sometimes they'd be the read buffer sometimes they'd be the write buffer and you'd read from you know read from a to write it to b doing some operation in the middle then you'd read from b write it to a you know with this interim operation until eventually you had the data that you needed this is you know it's just it's a hard model to wrap your head around and so what what CUDA to begin with and then later OpenCL tried to do is really move this to a more generic model where you have a pipeline and you can set up, you know, you can set your pipeline up once and then just run data through it. And it, you know, you can have these multiple operations and it, it all gets handled in the background, 
however that happens. And part of that is, you know, the GPU manufacturers are making their pipelines less and less fixed in their operations. And so more and more of this can be done in a single dump through the pipeline. You don't have to continually ping pong back and forth. And so OpenCL means that as they as they make their their cards more sort of generic processing systems, the you know, the more of this weird junk it can slowly remove and you don't have to worry about it. You write these little C kernels, which can then be, you know, can you know so one you can upload random data it doesn't have to be an image anymore and two you can apply you know standard c type instructions on this you know set of random data and you don't have to try to fit this into this weird image imaging model right and there's a, a companion technology we should point out here um to OpenCL called Grand Central Dispatch, if, if I recall correctly, that helps with things like understanding what the sort of parallel capabilities of your graphics card are and to make sure that you can keep it, keep it primed um, with the right amount of, of jobs, um, depending on whether you're running on a, you know, a MacBook or a Mac Pro. Um, actually, Grand Central Dispatcher doesn't really have too much to do with OpenCL. I mean, it, it's they're being integrated together more and more as we go, um, and I think a lot of you know we're going to see some some neat new stuff soon. Is it that. just yeah, okay? But I mean, really, what what the big you know the big core technology behind OpenCL has been LLVM which is a new open source compiler. And so the way that they're able to do this, um, the reason why they're able to have you write this code that then targets any, you know, recent generation of cards and and work, whether there are, you know, 12 ALUs or 1,000 ALUs and whether or not they, you know, can do histogram, you know, like protected asynchronous memory writing or not, um, is because you're shipping, you, you know, when you when you are running these kernels, the kernels actually get built for that card. Right, so you ship essentially the source for your kernels. Right. And when the user runs your application, the LLVM determines how to build that, that source for that particular GPU or multiple GPUs. Right, it builds a little program which it then uploads to the to that specific GPU, and and that wouldn't necessarily run on any other GPU model on right. any other machine. And it's also worth pointing out that that this particular caveat is is changing a bit in Lion, um, with the ability to ship precompiled kernels where you target just what I don't, actually I don't know how that works. Do you target uh, a variety of GPUs or? Does it ship? Um, sort of like, no, actually, uh, what what they're doing, um, I'm not sure how much we can say. Uh, yeah, okay, we'll talk about that next week after Lion ships. I mean, if Lion ships next week. Right, but essentially they're doing something similar to what I mean. If if you wanted to think about how you would solve that problem, Java becomes a good way to think right, about it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the idea actually no, Chronos is 
let's open. Maybe I think we can talk about it. Um, in, in any case, it's... They're shipping, they're shipping by code, um, which they then still compile for that specific card. Sure. Um, and so, 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 so let's, let's talk about um, from the sort of fanboy perspective, right? Because you come to me and you tell me, um, you know, you've got your, your MacBook Pro and it's got two cores. But hey, it's got this NVIDIA, or, or I guess, what are they all ATI now? Um, it's got this ATI GPU in it that's got, you know, a thousand cores. And, you know, for the lack of a, a better term, that's how sort of marketing talks about it. And so you say, well, and, and you know, um, this video compression software has now been, been written with OpenCL. Um, does that mean it's going to be a thousand times faster than, than my old CPU video encoder? No, because we still we still have this, you know, we we've made them easier to program for GPUs, but we still haven't solved. You know, there's still all these issues with one getting the data from the CPU to the GPU, and two, there's still no way. Each one of these is a separate core, and each because of that, each one of them has to work on separate data. Right, and so, so we're you back only get. You only get a thousand times speed up if you have a thousand small identical problems to be computing at the same time. Right. So we're back to that same problem we talked about originally, which is that video is is hard to parallelize in a lot of ways um, and hard right. to multi-thread. And so this is, I think, something that you know, again, from the fanboy perspective, um, people have been sort of surprised. You know, Adobe's been shipping a number of CUDA um, products for a while. Their Mercury playback engine in um, Premiere, and they've also got a video compression technology that leverages the GPU in this way, and you get you definitely get a performance boost, but it's not sort of orders of magnitude. It's maybe a 2x speed up or something. Um, and similarly, you know, Final Cut X uses OpenCL um, extensively as, as far as they've said, um, but it's not like this sort of massive leap in performance. Obviously, it's, it's a big leap for some of the reasons we talked about last week, but my sense is that OpenCL and I, I think you'd agree. OpenCL is a technology that um, a lot of people sort of look at as this this magical fix-all for performance issues, and they sort of programmers poke at it for a while, and they end up writing something that's slower than what they had before. Right. And so, so this gets us back to Flynn's taxonomy, right? We talked about this at the very very beginning. There are four categories in his taxonomy. We only talked about two: single data or single instruction, single data, SISTI and single instruction multiple data. Now, neither of these describes multiple. So I, what most people, when they think about, you know, okay, so a GPU has, you know, 1,024 cores, these ALUs. That means I can get 1,024 speed up. And the reason why they think that is because when they've put two cores, when they go from a single core to a dual core in their computer, they get a 2x speed up. When they go from dual to four, they get you know another dual you know two x speed up, and that's because those are separate computer those are separate CPUs. So when you add when you have two cores, those two cores can be doing two entirely different things. You can have one of them reading data and adding two numbers together, while the other core is reading two pieces of data and subtracting them. That's not true when you're talking about a, a SIMD, a single instruction multiple data platform like the GPU. 
it can handle multiple pieces of data, but it, can, it has to be doing the exact same operation to all of those pieces of data at once. So when you, you, when you add cores, all you're doing is widening your pipeline. You're not able to take things from later. So what a lot of people think this, you know, what, you know, a lot of people think happens when you add all these additional cores to run on on the GPU is that, okay, so what I used to have to do is take A and B and add them together and then divide by 2 and then multiply by 7 and then subtract 3 and then square it. And so what I can do now is I can do each one of those operations somewhere different on the GPU, but each one of those operations is dependent on all the operations before it. And so you still have to do them one at a time, even though you have all these extra cores just sitting there doing nothing. And the bigger architectural problem on the GPU is that each one of those, each one of those ALUs is reading from the exact same stream of instructions. So they all have a separate data stream, but no matter what, they're going to run the same instruction. So you only get a ten, you know, a two orders of magnitude speed up by having those thousand cores if you had a thousand things that all needed to be added together. Right. So you're, it only works, it, it only speeds up as wide as your data goes. Your, and, this is, and this is the other big caveat, is not only does the data have to be, do you have to have that much data, but anytime your, your operation, your next operation is based on your data, so say you're doing something simple like, you know, I'm going to add these two numbers and write them back out. Well, whenever you add two numbers and write them back out on a computer, you have to be careful that the number that you're writing out isn't too big. So if I take two of those 8-bit values, so I've got somewhere between 0 and 255, and some you know, second number, which is between 0 and 255, I add them together and write them out into another 8-bit value. That 8-bit value can only be 0 to 255. So if I add 255 and 254, I end up with a number that's too big to write out, which means I have to check it to make sure that it's not bigger than 255. And if it is, I write out 255. If it isn't, I have to, you know, then I can just write out the value. The problem is the GPU can't handle that. Right. Your operations have to be based... All of your operations have to be the same, which means they can't say, like, oh, if it's this, then do this. If it isn't, then do that which means you have to write these very convoluted programs so that they never do, you know, what in programming is called branching. Now, I mean, this is another one of the things that OpenCL is, is really good at, is it's able to take, you know, you can write your program like it branches, and it will actually convert it into, you know, a set of code that runs in the GPU that doesn't branch. But still, you know, what looks like a simple, you know, huge windfall in, in additional processing resources, actually, you know, in most real-world scenarios, you know, you end up whittling away most of those performance gains, you know, with all of these caveats that we have. Right. So, you know, at best, it's a nice way to sort of not have resources going totally underutilized, but there's a reason that your, your OS boots on your x86 chip and not on your, your Quadro chip. Um, because these are right. specialized I mean, processors. Yeah, there's a reason why we haven't switched over. I mean, this is this is a, you know, it's a, it's, 
you know, if this if this was a generic solution to do the same sort of processing, we would be using this computing model. We're able to run at much lower clock speeds with lower power requirements and get the same amount of data, you know, pipeline. And so if we could, we would be running everything SIMD. Right. But and it's, you know, as a as a very short caveat it's worth pointing out that you know there is some of this now this simd processing on built into cpus as well right we've been talking about sort of hypothetical chips that don't have all the fancy you know multi-stage pipeline and you know multiple vector units and on all the things that a modern cpu gives you right and so intel you can do the same sort of thing but you do it with four numbers at a time instead of a thousand Right, and OpenCL actually basically leverage those as well, right? I mean, your OpenCL code can run on your CPU as well and obviously not give you the same performance speed up, but um, help you leverage some parts of that architecture. Or at least it will be able to very soon. (laughs) So, and so uh, to bring it back around, that's why um, rendering has gotten faster and also uh, computers gotten faster in parallel with that. And that's helped with with rendering as well, and with things like real time effects, um, and all the other things that make video also oh so wonderful. Um, did any of this make sense? Some of it did. I can't tell. We uh, we need to figure out how to have some some topics where we we disagree. So maybe I should say you know, no, let's go back to PowerPC and do everything on the on the CPU because I don't know. Mm, more precise you can't trust OpenGL to give you the same number on two different computers didn't that that used to be true that is true that's still true I think I thought it wasn't anymore I thought they had uh, whatever it's Mm, called I think uh, OpenCL does it right you can guarantee it but not not on OpenGL right so it used to be that you would use things like OpenGL for for preview and real time effects but then your render happened on the CPU so that you could ensure that if you uh rendered your project on your Power Mac and then went to a, a laptop and rendered it again, you didn't get a different result. Did Do people care about it? No, they didn't really. I, you know, I think people probably care about that in the kind of places where people care about such things, but, you know. But, I mean, that's not, but... I mean, chances are... a different like, answer for... But, you know, really get a different answer. You, you know, we're talking about... Right, because it's all in like double precision floating point. Yeah, it's, you know, it all gets rounded down to an 8-bit integer or 10-bit integer anyways. But (sighs) you can imagine an edge case in which, you know, it. why why does this computer render an illegal value and this computer doesn't? Well, it's because this one's got an ATI GPU and this one's got an NVIDIA GPU. That would be an unpleasant uh, bug. I suppose. I don't know. But really, video people get overly concerned about flow. Yeah, you should really just focus on uh, making better stuff. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, you're you're sort of all choppy and internet-y anyways. Maybe we'll have to uh, evaluate uh, a new technology. I hear the kids are using Skype for this these days. Um, yeah. Is, uh, um. Yeah. Let us know. You know, if you actually. Yeah. Would you, you rather find yourself uh, listening to this randomly? Um, so that means you, mom, get lost and end up here. Let us first let us know that you're listening, and because uh, we can either go two ways. I mean, we could get into sort of current events and news, in which case I think there'll be more topics for um, 
arguments and, and uh, for you know real discussion, or we can just like, keep drilling down on technologies. So um, obviously, this was mostly a uh, you know core dump from from Mike's brain, um, and I think there's a lot of opportunity for that um, on a lot of different technologies between the two of us. Um, we can either uh, explain things or or make up reasonable sounding answers to things, um, and we're we're quite willing to do either. Um, but let us know which way you'd like to see this go. I think you know there's opportunities in both spaces. Yes, and uh, let us know if it sounds too horrible, and we'll find a solution for that too. Yeah, or if you but have only, a, a, yeah. a vendor of like high-end audio gear that wants to uh, ship out some mics. You could do that too. And like ISDN yes. lines with uh, Zephyrs or whatever those were called, Zeppelins, whatever. What were those uh, ISDN boxes called? <sighs> I don't know. I think it'd be easier for you to move. Yeah. Anyone want to buy a house in St. Paul? Let me know. So, yeah. So, we should give people how do they contact us if they. Well, you know, uh, we both like the Twitter. listeners. So, uh, I'm at C McFadden. And uh, you can hit me at Vexed, V-E-X-E-D. Or you can uh, send it to at Divergent underscore media. That one would work, too. There's an underscore in it? Yeah. Some little punk who likes, like, I don't know, some little dance party raver guy has my my Twitter handle. And Twitter won't take it from him until I, like, cough up a trademark. All right. Well, uh, we're also eminently Google Googleable, um, or you can just you know stop by our houses. So uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Take care.